Welcome to What Were You Thinking? I am really excited about this week's guest, Dr. Karen von Hippel. I met her last year in the short window when that was still allowed and I was blown away. She is probably one of the coolest women, or scrap that, one of the coolest people I have met. Karen is Director General of RUSI, the oldest think tank on international defence and security. And prior to this, Karen worked in the US State Department for six years, including as the Chief of Staff to General John Allen, who was the Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL. And she has experience in over two dozen conflict zones and worked for the UN in Somalia and Kosovo. How cool is that? We talk about all of these experiences in this episode, uh, although bear in mind this episode was recorded a couple of weeks before the inauguration. This podcast is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. And the Big Tent have introduced a special offer for podcast listeners. So you can join the Big Tent as a friend to access the many exclusive benefits such as intimate events with leaders from politics, business, tech, arts, etc. Just use the code podcast at the checkout to receive three whole months for free as a pay monthly member, which is good value. So go to bigtent.org.uk for full details. Karen, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? First time I met you, I was blown away. Um, you are very impressive and very cool and already uh, one of my role models. Uh, I think you're, you're, you're tremendous. So I'm absolutely chuffed to have you on the show. And um, I just wanted to start off by asking you about your early career because it's fascinating. And obviously, you know, the things you studied, it was very clear you were interested in security. But your first two jobs or maybe not your first two, but very early on, you worked for the UN and went to Somalia and Kosovo. So I'd love to hear a bit about how did that come about and what was, you know, what was that like? Because those were sticky places to, to, to be at the time. Okay, well, thank you, Laura, and thank you for inviting me on your show. It's an honor for me to join your show, and it was a pleasure meeting you the other night as well. So maybe I'll get you to be interviewed on my podcast. <laughs> Take that. Podcast ping pong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I, you know, my career has been a bit back and forth. I've bounced a bit between working for, uh, let's just say, governments or multilateral organizations on issues related to conflict and stabilization. And then I've spent some time in think tanks where I've been writing about those same issues. So I have a bit of a practitioner's uh, background and experience, and then I try to do it myself. So I understand the challenges a lot more. And I think, uh, you know, I think tanks these days are many more people with that kind of background because it's, it's easier to write about policy and make recommendations when you understand all the hurdles and challenges that maybe you don't understand as well if you haven't spent time in these places. I mean, I think you know from your experience in government that it's never as easy as people think it is from the outside. Mm. Uh, but I was very lucky early on to get these field opportunities in Somalia and Kosovo, working for the UN. Uh, in Somalia, I think I'd started working on Somalia at the LSE for a project we did back in the mid 90s, actually, mm. when there wasn't a central government and we were preparing a sort of menu of options for constitutions decentralized constitutions for Somalis if and when they're ready to form a new state. 
And then we, I spent a lot of time organizing seminars for Somalis to talk about these various options. What does a decentralized model look like for you? And what does, you know, uh, and how would you organize yourselves? And we brought in a range of experts, et cetera, to talk about it. So it was us just, it's kind of us sharing with many Somalis who had been really deprived of that kind of expertise in education for a very long time because of the, the longstanding civil conflict. It was really interesting, a lot of fun, and I still have an enormous affection for the place and for the people. And I'm quite close to a number of people that I met back then. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then I, because I had been writing as an academic, I'd been writing about stabilization, state building type things. Uh, and the UN ended up running Kosovo. It was the interim administration, as you recall, after the 1999 bombing campaign by the NATO, by NATO. Uh, the UN basically ran a caretaker government and I was able to get a job inside that government. And so I was part of that international administration. And it was very interesting because I'd been writing about these types of issues for a while. And then when you're in the driver's seat, it is so complicated and bizarre. And in Kosovo, it was even more bizarre because we had, you know, many people from all over the world who were acting ministers. We had a Icelandic minister of health. We had a Swedish governor of one of the provinces. I mean, it was just a little bit chaotic and everyone was drawing on their own country's experiences in terms of trying to uh, work with the Kosovars to help them set up the state. I think I, Today, I have different views about external people, you know, managing someone else's country. I don't think I would be as supportive of it as much as I was back then, but uh, it was certainly an interesting time. And like uh, my Somali experience, I'm still quite close to many of the people that I met back then because it was very intense. I mean, when we lived in Kosovo in 2000, we lived just like the Kosovars. We had no electricity, we had no water. Uh, when it would come on at two or three in the morning, everyone would fill up their water bottles in case they needed to take a bath or something the next day. And uh, one time, actually, if you don't mind a mini segue, can I tell you a little? Yeah, okay. so yeah, one yeah. time we had an outbreak of tularemia and I didn't know what tularemia was, but we got the WHO sent the tularemia team to Kosovo. Turns out tularemia is, a, it, I guess you get a bad stomach, you can get quite sick if you drink water where dead rats were hanging out. Mm. So one of my friends, so, so the advice we got from the WHO team was don't touch dead rats. And one of my friends said, resist the urge, Karen. But because of that, we couldn't uh, use the water from the tap to brush our teeth. We all had to have bottled water. And one night I ran out of bottled water to brush my teeth and all I had in the fridge was a beer. And so I tried to rinse my mouth out with toothpaste with a beer and it foamed up like crazy. It was, it was an interesting <laughs> chemistry experiment. Let's just say, kids, <laughs> what, don't try that at home. Exactly what not to do at home. So it's really cool about Kosovo and, and Somalia and UNMIC, the UN uh, mission in Kosovo is, as you say, a fascinating example. And um, funnily enough, uh, as a student, I spent a summer in Kosovo at the American mm. University of Kosovo. Oh, fantastic. What year was that? That was 2010, I mm. think. Or nine, 2010. Yeah, and I, I visited, uh, God, how am I pronouncing it now? Uh, Mitrovica. Mitrovica. Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends how you, if you're Albanian or Serb, how you pronounce it. Too. Right, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I went back to do my dissertation. I did studies and field studies. And yeah, Fantastic. you're bringing back all sorts of memories well, there. Yes. 
We all have memories. And, you know, it was a different period as well. It was a period mm. when the British military was very forward-leaning and the Americans were not, as opposed to yeah. how they changed when, when Iraq happened. Uh, it was a period when we, the international community, were not targets like we are today because of the whole Al-Qaeda, Islamic yeah. State type threat. So we were able to get on with our, our work and feel relatively safe. I mean, Somalia had been dangerous and people were kidnapped and, you know, everyone ended up in the middle of a, sh uh, you know, shootout. I mean, I was even in the middle of a shootout at one point in Mogadishu, but that was sort of not the same as it is now where it's, you know, you behind berms and you're staying at the airport in Somalia. And, you know, we, I was able to travel throughout that country. I traveled everywhere in Kosovo by myself. I think I could still do that in Kosovo today, but I certainly think mm. that the conflicts have changed and the world's changed since then. Totally. Actually, I remember walking around with a fellow student in uh, in Kosovo and uh, people found out, locals found out that she was American and they shouted, she's from Bill Clinton, she's from Bill Clinton. <laughs> and they were so excited. And, you know, it's a statue of Bill Clinton. Of course, Tony Blair is also very popular. It's so, the one yeah. place where they still love Americans. It's probably the only place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was 10 years ago, but I suspect it's probably still yeah. the case. Yeah. So let me ask you um, about people and which individuals or one individual in particular or multiple um, have had a particular impact on your thinking and, and, and life? Okay, that's a good question. I would say, personally, I would, maybe I'd point to my mother, my grandmother, because they were both professionals or both doctors. And I think they always gave me the confidence that I could do anything I wanted because they did. And even though I grew up uh, in, a, in a little bit of a hick place in, in, in Alaska, at least it was hick when I was a kid, uh, and it was very abnormal that my mother was a doctor. Very few of my friends' mothers worked. Certainly it was very strange that my grandmother was a psychoanalyst. It gave me the strength that I needed to feel that I could do whatever I wanted to, even if none of my peers felt the same way or were, had the same confidence that I was able to get from my family. So I suppose on a personal level, I, I had my grandmother and my mother. And then, you know, various jobs that I've had, I've had some very good bosses and some very bad bosses, and I've learned so many things about leadership from both. <laughs> and, you know, even some of the ones that maybe didn't always lead by example were very, could have been good mentors because they advised me about how to be a better boss and a more caring boss. So I think, you know, I didn't really learn a lot from so many people that I worked for. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm a boss now, as you know, at, at RUSI, and I know I can always improve, but I think so many of the things that I learned even in the last six or seven years, especially when I was at the State Department, because there was a lot of management responsibilities there, mm. uh, I, you know, I tried to bring with me to Rusi. Interesting. And so are there any, any examples of like any bosses in particular that stand out? Or am well, I, I would say my, too much on the spot? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I had, you know, my two previous bosses at the State Department, uh, Rick Barton and then John Allen were both very good in very different ways. Uh, I would say, you know, Rick, who was the assistant secretary and I was one of his deputies, he was very good at listening to everybody and making sure you always listen to the youngest person in the room uh, and make sure that, uh, you know, you really worry about people's well-being and, and health. And then I suppose with John Allen, he just never, ever lost his cool. He was a four-star Marine general, had seen it all. And he was just a really lovely person. He never talked smack about anybody. He would always, didn't gossip. You know, people gossip a lot, as you know, in government jobs. 
yeah. very, very careful. Zoe was incredibly uh, thoughtful, prepared for every meeting, really sat down and spent an hour or so preparing for whatever it is he, he liked to do. And I've tried to bring some of that aspect into my current job. I always try to prepare pretty much for everything that I do when I can. Um, so yeah, and I think I learned a lot from both of them and, uh, I'm really grateful I had the opportunity to work for both of them. Yeah, and no, it's fascinating. And as you say, I guess the military, they do bring that combination of discipline and, uh, yeah, being able to handle pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Although can not... I also say that my previous chair at Rusi, uh, Lord Haig, William Haig mm. was really incredible to work with as well. And I'm looking forward to working with our new chair, Sir David Liddington, and, uh, but it, William is quite special. And, uh, you know, he was, he was also very wise and very patient and he didn't rush to judgment and didn't rush to decisions. And, he was really a very good mentor in many ways for me as well. Cause I hadn't been the boss boss before I took this job. And obviously he had a lot of experience. So you just mentioned John, John Allen and um, the role you did for him is working as chief of staff. And, and as a result, you know, being part of the Obama administration of that role, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating one because um, just for the listeners, John Allen was special presidential envoy for the global coalition to counter the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant and ISIL. So that is quite a task. Yeah, that was actually my third job at the State Department. So I came in as a political appointee early on, although really as a technical person for working in the Counterterrorism Bureau as a senior advisor mm. to Ambassador Dan Benjamin, who was also a really excellent boss and he's become a good friend. Then I worked in the Conflict and Stabilization Bureau as a deputy. And then my last year, I worked for John Allen as his chief of staff. And it was, you know, it was what America can do when it's at its best. So when there's a big global crisis, you know, America led. And, and John Allen, who was a very respectful, uh, uh, let's just say a leader, respectful of allies. And so he wasn't, he was the kind of boss that you really like to have because he, you know, every single ally in that uh, alliance, well, there are about 80 plus countries involved, were treated with the utmost respect. He always listened to them. He did everything in partnership and different countries ran different subcommittees, whether it was on terror financing or messaging or, uh, you know, managing the foreign fighter challenge. And he, this is his third or fourth or even fifth coalition he's led. He was leading, you know, in NATO. He led the NATO uh, uh, military uh, alliance in Afghanistan. He's, he's run many alliances. He has a lot of experience and he has lots and lots of contacts around the world. And I appreciated the way he was so respectful of, of America's allies, as opposed to the way, you know, George Bush even treated some allies or uh, obviously Trump. And so if you look at the way that he was able to convene all of these countries, get them to come together at the highest levels, get them to coordinate in serious ways. And then you look at what happened with Trump when we have this pandemic and no one comes together at all, countries are competing with each other, they're fighting over vaccines, they're fighting over different methods of doing things. And there's been really, the only collaboration we've seen has happened between the scientists and the researchers, and that's all been done privately. And, and obviously the private sector as well in the race for the vaccine. And it's amazing the way scientists and health workers around the world have collaborated, really at breakneck speed. But none of that's really been encouraged by governments. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very sharp contrast to see 
how countries can work together in the best possible way. And Obama did tap John Allen to be the envoy to lead him. So I was his chief of staff. I don't think I was a very good chief of staff, actually, to be honest. Um, but I really enjoyed working with him. And he, of course, traveled around the world and met with all the allies and kept the coalition together. And so he did the coalition diplomacy and I did the bureaucratic diplomacy at the State Department and <laughs> battled my colleagues as you do when you're inside government. Uh, but it was actually very interesting. And I got to know, really, I got to know how the State Department works pretty well with that job and my previous job. So I, you know, it's hard sometimes as a political appointee, I don't know if you have this experience, Laura, when you went into government, but in the beginning, you don't really know how anything works and it's almost like a secret language. And it just took me so long to understand what was going on. It was like being the stupidest kid in the class learning a foreign language and everyone's going blah, 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 and they're all nodding and you have no idea what they're <laughs> saying. It was a bit like that when I started at the State Department and then by the end, I, there I was blabbing out acronyms like the rest of them. So, you go native pretty quick. Yeah. 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 And because so, how many political appointees are there? There's, there's a lot more than oh, there's a the British There are about 4,000, yeah. if you can believe it. That's across the U.S. government, though. So that's everywhere from Department of Agriculture wow. through to the State Department. And then there are other ways of putting people in as technical experts. So I started out as one of those, and then I shifted to a political position. So, you know, there are pros and cons of each model. And, you know, I can talk for hours on that. But I think by <laughs> the end, I became a bit of a, I was more of a, I felt like I was more of a career person because some of the politicals would drive me crazy and I would get really irritated with them, forgetting that I was actually one of them too. So, Yeah. Did, um, did Trump ever manage to fill 4,000 political No, no, he, he kept most there. of them empty because he actually didn't want them there. Yeah, right. I think he preferred, you know, acting because when you're acting, you can't really control anything. He would repeatedly say he was the only one that mattered anyway. He didn't really, you know, he contradicted, and it wouldn't have even mattered because he didn't, he didn't uh, let them, any of his, I mean, the people working for him, including the cabinet, no one really spoke for Trump. So he didn't delegate at all. And nice. so it wouldn't have mattered Crazy. if people were in those jobs. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's one version of leadership, isn't it? One interpretation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's really interesting. So, so you were, you know, working a lot, uh, well, so whilst you were at the State Department in particular, obviously with John Allen, terrorism and fighting ISIL in particular was your, your core focus. What's the state of global terrorism at the moment? Well, it's in an interesting, it's in an interesting phase. Obviously, the territorial so-called caliphate has been defeated in Iraq and Syria, but there's still 20,000 family members and several thousand foreign fighters in these detention camps in Northeast Syria. And most countries in Europe are acting like ostriches with their head in the sand because they don't want to bring them back home. They're just leaving them there to rot, which is not the right answer. They could easily escape. And they are very well trained, very, uh, very hardened. And many of them are pretty nasty. Now there's some innocent children and some innocent women in there as well, but some of the women are complicit too. So we have a problem on our hands that we're not really managing as we speak. But separately from that, the, the Islamic State certainly isn't gone. It's become much more virtual. It was always virtual. It was always very good in the cloud, but now it's much more virtual than before. And I suspect they will continue to try to inspire attacks like, which ha like what happened recently in France. There were several attacks recently in France at a church, at a school, when the poor teacher got beheaded. Mm -hmm. um, and in Austria, too, if you remember uh, a few few weeks ago, Vienna. someone yeah. went on the rampage in, in Vienna, 
So we'll, we'll still have those kinds of attacks. I'm not sure how they're going to regroup and, uh, or if it'll remain a bit dispersed for some time, but I, I wouldn't say we've seen the end of that. And I'm hoping that the Biden administration will, uh, you know, refocus on really defeating that organization. Mm. At the same time, it seems to have inspired and spawned a right-wing version, uh, the opposite version, much more of extremist right-wing terrorism, uh, which we've seen in the United States. And I think Trump has also given them a lot of air, some of these right-wing hate groups, white supremacist groups and others. And in fact, the FBI now say today that the right-wing extremism is far more of a threat in America than the Islamist uh, type of extremism. Uh, other countries in Europe are also experiencing that. I know Germany has had a resurgence and some other places have as well. I don't know about the Netherlands. Um, the UK has had a bit, but thankfully it's, it's uh, mostly under control, but it's really hard to say how that will go. And if you look at the attack in Christchurch uh, in New Zealand a couple of years ago, that was actually, you know, the kid who did it was motivated because he was after, he thought, you know, Muslims were bad. So he was responding to the Islamist uh, attacks. And so sometimes they feed off each other and sometimes they act totally independently. I mean, some of the American white supremacist action has nothing to do with Muslims or it doesn't, you know, there's not that type of bigotry. It's another type of bigotry, uh, you know, against non-whites basically in the United States. But sometimes it is, these guys are interacting with each other and inspiring each other in a negative way. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned Biden and your hope for, uh, you know, the hope uh, in relation to his his election. Uh, and of course, you are a political appointee, so we therefore know what your politics is. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know what? I'm not super. I'm not, I mean, I if there had been a good Republican, I would have been just as happy. It's just interesting. Wasn't, yeah. You know, yeah. 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 I'm not super political. I'm more of a technical person, and, and I care about my issues and foreign policy. And some of those do overlap with. You know, Senator McCain, for example, who's a Republican. Mm. So it's not, I'm not, you know, that extremist on either side. So um, I shouldn't use that word after we've just been talking about extremism. I'm not that <laughs> partisan, <laughs> let's say. Well, that is a great fit for this podcast. So because um, <laughs> uh, the Big Tent Ideas Festival is all, all, uh, all about that. Um, so what impact do you think Trump had on security policy? And and what are your you know, you know what are your thoughts following Biden's election? Mm -hmm. So I would say the U.S. has been withdrawing from its global leadership role, the one that it's really held since the end of the Second World War, for some time. So it's probably started under Bush when he went to war, really broke international law in many ways by going to war. Then of course Obama didn't want to repeat many of those mistakes. And so also withdrew. And if you recall, people used to say he was leading from behind. So he didn't do what he probably should have done in Ukraine or in Syria or in other places. Uh, and then of course, Trump comes along and accelerates that trajectory that was already in motion and basically just completely withdraws America from the world stage. So even if Bush and Obama had started withdrawing, they still led coalitions. They still you know, worked with allies on big issues. Trump just pulled out entirely. He just doesn't really care. Some of his people tried to demand, uh, you know, certain types of behavior from allies, which was not the way you treat allies. But pretty much, he, as we know, he's cozied up more to his authoritarian pals 
than to traditional allies of the United States. So he's been a bit of a disaster. And at the same time, obviously the world has been changing. It's more multipolar. China is a, obviously a big giant country that will play an enormous role in the world stage. And whether or not you like the, China or not, we all have to learn how to work with China when we can. Um, so, you know, many of those issues have changed. So Biden is going to come in, not, he won't be able to just reset to the way it was before Trump because the world has changed. Four years of Trumpism has, you know, it's been a much more fragmented world without America playing the role it had and no other country filling that void. America doesn't need to be the only country, but no other country filled that void. This country, the United Kingdom, was obviously transfixed with Brexit and so has been much more inward focused the last three or four years. And no other, the EU, the UN, none of these other institutions have been playing a much more assertive role on the global stage. And so obviously that needs to change. Now, I think, as we all know, Biden is more multilateral, committed to partnerships, wants to, you know, cares about climate change, wants to, you know, he, he supports all the things that many of us support. But I think he's going to have a difficult time in many ways because I think many countries, even close friends of the United States, including the UK, are going to say, well, we're happy to work with you. We're happy you're back. But, you know, given how strong Trumpism was in the election, so Trump got defeated, but he got 11 million more votes than he did last time in 2016. The Republican Party, people who Trump supported, did very well in the Senate and the House and in state legislatures. So Trumpism itself is very much alive. People were tired of him probably because he's just exhausting. Every day you just exhaust yourself getting upset or not getting upset at his latest antics. But Trumpism is still alive. And I think that threat in the background is going to make it very difficult for countries like the UK and others not to think about their own resilience and their own building up their own mechanisms and their own partnerships. And I don't know what it means in practice, but I do think they're going to say, look, we're happy to work with you, but what's to stop another Trump, a more effective Trump? This Trump wasn't actually that effective. He was good at dismantling things, but he wasn't very good at putting anything together. So what's to stop a more effective one from coming along? And then, then what do we do? You know, then where are we? So we need to think about how we can manage on our own without you, if that happens again. And that's going to be complicated. And I don't know what that mm -hmm. means actually in practice. Yeah, that is interesting. So you're almost like an alternative to, to NATO. Or just, you know, they get on with things without America. And if America joins, great. And if it doesn't, fine. But mm. I do think, you know, countries need to come together. And there was a lot of discussion about that early on in the Trump era with the so-called like-minded countries coming together. But, you know, nothing, nothing really happened to that great of a degree. I think recently the Australians pulled together countries to think about working closely on COVID. There are about 10 or 11 countries that are working together. But, you know, I think we just will, will likely see more of that. And it'll probably be more ad hoc coalitions that are coming together for a certain purpose versus right. under the UN umbrella or the EU or NATO necessarily. Interesting. Very interesting. So moving on to place, what place uh, is special to you and arguably has had an impact on your thinking? Okay. So I have been to many places in the world. I've been to lots of conflict zones, lots of what Trump calls shitholes. Um, <laughs> and I quite like going to places that are a little bit quirky because people are incredibly resilient and mm. you learn so much when you go to places like Somalia or Kosovo. But 
I, you know, for me, I quite, these jobs that I've had have been, you know, look, not, not so stressful compared to many other jobs, but fairly stressful. And I like being able to unplug. And I recently bought a very small little place in Southern Turkey on the sea. It was the only place I could afford that was quite beautiful. And I just love going there because I can unplug and stare at the sea and not see people. And the drive is really beautiful. You go down a peninsula and I, it just is a great way to let all these, you know, stresses from work and from whatever it is that you worry about, whether it's Donald Trump or other issues, it just is a great way to let it go. Staring at the sea. I'm, I like staring at the sea. Some people like mountains. Some people like staring at fire. <laughs> I like staring at the sea. I don't know about you. Yeah. Um, I always thought it was sea and I do love the sea, but then early in the year, I was in mountains again. And then you're like, oh, I do understand why people love mountains. Yeah, that's true. I mean, They're actually, wonderful. they are beautiful. And I grew up in Anchorage, as I mentioned, and Anchorage is surrounded by mountains. It's in a, a sort of a, a large bay and it's quite beautiful. And I think I was very spoiled having these incredible mountains around me. But I, I also don't like cold weather that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I prefer to be by the sea, a warm sea, yeah, not a, a cold warm sea. sea. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that does sound lovely. And so you get to deplug and, uh, and sort of recharge. Yeah. Do a bit of gardening. I'm horrible at it, but it's fun. <laughs> and so um, you're now obviously director general of, of Rusi which won Think Tank of the Year Award Woo-hoo! very recently. Yeah, um, very exciting. Is, yeah, that's, uh, that's very impressive. Um, that's done by, oh my gosh, who? Um, Prospect. Prospect, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a very... Yeah, no, it's great. In fact, we were shortlisted a couple of years in a row the last few years, and I went to all the ceremonies when they announced a winner, and I had my Oscar face on when we didn't win. You know, I had that frozen <laughs> smile. Congratulations. And then this year, urgh, the one year we couldn't go. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, but no, we're super thrilled and it's really exciting. And it was a great way to end a really difficult year. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. So congratulations. And and for the listeners who aren't familiar with um, the Royal United Services Institute, why don't you tell us a little bit more uh-huh. about what you do. So yes, well, Rusi was founded in 1831 by the Duke of Wellington. And we tell wow. people we are the world's oldest defense and security think tank. Uh, I, I think that's true, although I'm still waiting from someone from India or China to correct me on that. Um, and, you know, for many, many years, Rusi focused on mostly defense issues, defense and, and you know, military sciences, basically. And then I would say about 10, 12 years ago, when my predecessor, Michael Clark, took over, he really expanded the research base at RUSI. And so when I started, RUSI was already doing some great research. And so I was able to build on really what Michael had started. And we, we have about nine research programs, everything from cyber to financial crime, to organized crime, to military sciences, defense industry, nuclear proliferation. So a, a kind of a range of defense and security issues. Mm-hmm. It's not like Chatham House, which I think is more expensive and does everything from poverty through to uh, climate change. Although I think we all will start doing more on climate change. So, but we do try to keep more focused uh, when we can on those issues. So when we're independent, we're not aligned to a political party. We raise all of our own money for everything we do. Uh, Many years, for many years, Rusi was funded by the Ministry of Defense, but it was let free in the 80s. And it's probably (laughs) a good thing for us. We have a beautiful building on Whitehall, 61 Whitehall, which 
was built in 1896 and we're just starting a renovation refurbishment process now so uh, it can be brought up to the 21st century it pretty much looks like it did in 1896 if you went in there today um, you've got that brilliant library didn't yeah you, beautiful library right Very so stunning. we have great plans we're building an extra floor and it'll be beautiful when it's done and i think you know we were you know, they, they were open to our plans. We were very careful what we proposed, but because we were the original inhabitants of the building, and I think that they, the, the, the planning committees and others thought it was important to have some of the original inhabitants <laughs> still on Whitehall, given how many hotels and other shops and stuff are opening on Whitehall. So mm, uh, we're really yeah. lucky with the location as well. So, yeah. And, we're um, and you guys do events and reports and we do all events, this, we lots do of stuff. Reports, right? we do podcasts, we do commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we do a bit of training and yeah. And um, how much of it is UK focused? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it really depends because we also have a Europe office now post uh, Brexit. We have Rusi Europe and based in Brussels and is a fully independent legal body. So we do a lot of European funded research. We get some mm. funds from the Canadians, from the US, um, from the Dutch. Many different countries support our work as well as foundations like the Ford Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation, those kinds of foundations. Um, and then there are some individuals who support us and some corporates. And uh, it really depends on the team. So the nuclear team spends a lot of time worried about North Korea and Iran. Mm. Um, those are really are, it's not just the UK's views. Of course, they also focus on that. Uh, we have an international security studies team that looks at Iran and Russia and China and much of it from a British vantage point, but it, British point of view, but not all of it. It really depends on the team and the issue and, and, and what they do. So it's a bit of a mix. I mean, we're definitely a British based think tank, but we also worry about the security and defense of Britain's allies. Yeah, no, that's that's really important. So, um, focusing on the UK, um, what are the main things you think are sort of needed in regards to defence and security policy? Well, I would say it would be good to figure out what global Britain's going to be. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that will happen after Brexit, and of course, I think the pandemic has complicated things for everybody. Um, I think uh, the Prime Minister about two weeks ago did made quite an interesting effort when in the space of one week he announced a huge increase in defense spending as well as an increase in uh, spending on climate change issues, a green industrial revolution. And it seemed to be a bit of a shout out to the United States uh, that, you know, even if Boris and Trump got along quite well, that they were definitely looking forward to working with the Biden incoming Biden administration mm-hmm. uh, because those are issues obviously that uh, Biden has talked about yeah. a lot. All of those except for lowering 0.7, which yeah, that's I'm true. assuming that's true. Biden might not be too keen on. Well, I don't know. You know, America doesn't, America spends less than one half of 1% that's true, on it? development yeah. aid. So I don't think, you know, they've never made that kind of a commitment. I think it was people like Bill Gates that were actually more concerned about that. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, I do think that, uh, yeah, w- what kind of, uh, you know, how is, what, what, what will the UK focus on? What will the priorities be? Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing how they define all that once this integrated review is, 
finally published. Um, but look, there's a lot of great, there are a lot of great things the UK does. The UK has a lot of expertise in defense and security really across the board. And there's a lot that the UK can contribute. And I'm never worried as much as other people are about how big your economy is or how big your footprint is. If you have good ideas, you can make a difference. So yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you need to define global Britain and, and be integrated review. What would you recommend is, you know, this government does to articulate that? that yeah, that I mean, it's an interesting question. I wouldn't uh, presume to advise the British government about what, what they should be doing. But I do think uh, it's going to be a challenge for all countries going forward with smaller economies because of course after COVID, you know, we're going to probably be in a recession for some time. So we'll have to make do with a lot less. Now, I, you know, for me, money is never really the issue. I mean, don't forget the Americans spent trillions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I don't think you can point to enormous successes in either of those countries. When I worked at the State Department, I was in a bureau for a while that had very little money to do stuff, and we could be quite impactful with small amounts of money. You just have to be smart and, uh, you know, focus in the way you spend your money. So, you know, I do think, and then of course, the UK is still trying to figure out what kind of partnership it wants to have with China going forward. Obviously there's the, the cyber threat issue, there's Russia, China, but the UK and other countries will be facing. And I'm hoping they come together to try to figure it out together. I don't think any country can really manage any of these on their own, including the United States. Mm -hmm. I think that's another area where Trump failed on China was that he just wasn't interested in working with other countries and China's too big for America to try to manage on its own. So how can we all work with China in a more, in a more productive way? Well, I think Angela Merkel uh, from Germany said it best when she said, China is a competitor, but it's also a partner. And I do think we all need to be thinking in a more nuanced way about China. I mean, I think in the United States, there was finally recognition that these, this policy that had really been the US policy on China for decades, really since Nixon of strategic engagement didn't work. In other words, the policy was if we engage with China, they'll become more democratic, they'll respect human rights, they'll look more like us. And obviously that, that, those assumptions were flawed. And I, you know, Trump can be given credit for calling out that policy publicly. I don't think anyone else has called it out. On the other hand, I'm not sure that the reverse would have been more successful, that a policy of containment or trying to isolate China would have succeeded either. And I do think we just all need to be much more comfortable in that gray area. And, you know, and, and if you look at the Biden platform on China, it does say we'll work with China where we can on climate change and North Korea, and we'll push back on human rights and unfair trade practices. And I suspect the UK has a very similar policy as well. So, mm. or will have a very similar policy. You mentioned North Korea, of course, Trump um, got... Rocket man. Rocket man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he obviously managed to, in some ways, do something that no one expected him to do uh, yeah. in opening those conversations. He did, but he didn't achieve it. anything either, did he? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, yeah. what what did he make of that? And, and where where are, you know, where has it been left off? And, and what role is, if any, is there for Biden? Look, I, I'm, I'm not one of these purists who says the top people shouldn't meet until 
the bottom people have met and agreed to everything. And then the top people go in and seal the deal. I, I don't have a problem with Trump wanting to meet with Kim Jong-un uh, early on in the process. But the problem with Trump's leadership in foreign affairs is that he's never been very good at implementing a strategy. I don't even think he fully understands what a strategy is and how to implement it. So you can't just say things and expect them to happen. You have to build up the infrastructure to make that happen. And the strategies need to be implemented. You need a battle plan, as a military would say. And he never did that. And so, yes, he had some interesting conversations and they fell in love and all of that, but nothing really came out of it. So, I, you know, I think Biden will be in an interesting place. He can try to restart talks with partners. He can try to do things bilaterally, uh, but uh, he'll certainly engage. Look, I mean, I think the previous attempts have not been successful either. So it's, you know, I think the problem that often we have overall with some of these places, and I think Americans in particular have this problem because there's an American exceptionalism thing going on is that we think we can solve all of these big challenges. You know, Israel, Palestine, we think we can solve it. We think we can end the Syrian civil war. We think we can solve the North Korean nuclear issue in Iran. We can solve that problem. We can't solve all these issues. And, you know, many things will happen in the world that we may not like, and we have to learn how to mitigate them and try to manage them. And of course, we should try to resolve longstanding conflicts and, and wars. We should try to, you know, promote uh, Israel-Palestine peace deal, because of course they matter so much. But I think that we shouldn't always assume that we can, and we need a bit more humility. And so mm. I think this is a problem Americans often have. I, say, I would say other countries probably have the opposite. They don't think they can do anything because they're not the big power. So I think there probably needs to be a bit of a, a marriage of the, the insecure and the oversecure. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And, and um, we have a country that would be remiss not to talk about is, is Russia. What are the main things that we should consider I mean, Russia is another one like China where we assumed that, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, that you engage and they'll become democratic just like us and all of that. And of course, that didn't happen either. Now, Russia is very different than China in many, many ways. And Russia, unlike China, has, you know, China has been just a growing behemoth. It's going from strength to strength to strength. And it's now this incredible superpower many ways economically in particular and it's trying to be more of a military superpower russia has obviously had nuclear weapons and it has had a very strong military but its economy is not very strong and in many ways russia's managed to punch way above its weight over the last you know i think its economy is about the size of italy's and it's obviously we, there's an authoritarian leader there uh, there's a lot of corruption obviously uh, and yet you know, Putin has been incredibly clever with the tools at his disposal. And so now Russia is at the heart of any deal in Syria. It's at the heart of any deal on Libya. It's, you know, in interfered in elections from the UK to the United States to Montenegro to many other parts of the world. It's really been very good at, you know, cyber attacks, all sorts of things. So Russia has made itself a big player, despite not necessarily having wherewithal that you'd ex mm. expect a country to have. So Russia is obviously a challenge. And is like, that what, what people refer to as gray zone tactics? Well, I think they, you know, they do a lot of, uh, what do they call it? Sub, yeah, sub-threshold 
tactics short of war. They're poking everywhere, right? And so they're doing, and then they deny it all. So that's really what they mean is the cyber attacks. It's the men not wearing uniforms that go in and assassinating people in other countries, like in the UK, attempts to, attempts yeah. to assassinate or attempts to assassinate, alleged attempts to assassinate Navalny, the opposition leader. So all of that, and they deny everything. China doesn't do that. China is, you know, very overt with its investments and its activities, and it's overt when it gets upset about things. But I think we haven't figured out really how to work with Russia. And I, you know, you talk to Russia experts, and they'll say, "Well, you have to understand, Putin feels that he's on the defensive, etc." And I'm, I'm fine with some of those arguments. I guess my problem is, well, what does work? Because I think we've pretty much tried everything. We've tried diplomacy. We've tried public aggression or getting angry publicly. We've tried getting angry privately and none of this has worked. So, you know, it would be interesting to get a Russia expert to explain what, how they think you can at least bring Russia to the table to be a productive player as opposed to being so disruptive and causing so much trouble in some of the places like in Syria. I mean, the damage that they've done in the Syrian civil war and really the lack of care about the lives of Syrian citizens. I mean, they've killed so many people in Syria working alongside the Assad regime. Mm. And so it's really a tough one. I mean, I, you know, it's not impossible, but it's certainly something that they need to attempt and work on in a better way. And I don't know, maybe it won't be possible as long as Putin's in power. I just don't know. Yeah. So what, uh, what can countries like the UK do to better equip themselves against those type of attacks? Well, I think, you know, I think that the prime minister made some important announcements in the defense spending review about, you know, offensive cyber capabilities, spending more money on defense. Obviously, the concerns about the North Atlantic are very real with the Russians, obviously, you know, making attempts, whether it's with submarines or, or some fighter jets in the region. Uh, the UK can work and does work with the Baltics and the Scandinavian countries that also care very much about that. So I think, you know, it's just, it'll be different types of alliances and arrangements once the UK is fully out of the EU. I know it's left the EU, but I guess post-Brexit. Uh, and there's a lot of, a lot that can be done in partnership with other countries. And some of those countries are very smart and they're very small, but they're very smart. I think Finland and Estonia are very clever and, you know, it's out of necessity, they have to be, but they're very good at, at a number of these hybrid gray area attacks uh, and how to manage them. So I do think just, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of working with others. I'm not a fan of doing things on, on one's own. It's, you know, you get much more mm -hmm. done and you have more legitimacy and everyone has different capabilities that they bring to the table. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so object, last but not least, is there an object that uh, I know this is a really tricky question, but it's one of my, as a result, it's, it's often quite fun. Is, is there an object that is, has had an impact on your thinking? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's really hard for me to say. I'm not that attached to objects. Um, I like my plants a lot. Um, I, you know, I, 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 in terms of impact on my thinking, you mean in a personal way, not necessarily a, a work way, right? Yeah, yeah, it could okay. yeah, it could be either, yeah. I guess I have some objects in my my apartment that, you know, remind me of where I'm from and where I grew up. One of them is my ulu, which is in a, a native carving knife that natives use to cut whale blubber and 
cut up seals and things. It's like a small mezzaluna. It's quite sharp. And it's good at cutting up parsley, for example. Ah. Um, but, you know, I, I always like having a few things around me that remind me of my childhood or places that I've lived. I've lived in Kenya, so I like having some objects ah. from Africa and uh, Somalia and places like that. So, but I'm not a big collector and I'm not, I'm not really attached to things. So, but tell us a bit more about growing up in also in, in uh, Alaska. Yeah, I know. I'm, I probably insulted any Alaskan by calling it a hick place, but it was a bit rednecky when I was a kid. I think it's a little bit less so now. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a kind of a quirky place. My parents still live there. You know, it's quite pretty, very outdoorsy. Uh, it's very libertarian politically. So, I mean, I'm not aligned as much as others politically, but uh, you know, it's quite beautiful when I'm there. I really enjoy being back and I still have some friends there and do lots of really nice hikes in the, in the summertime. And I learn how to skate ski in the winter, which is kind of, it's the cross country skiing that's not classic where you go sideways instead of uh, just straight forward. And it's good fun, good exercise. So I quite enjoy going there now, but I'm not a huge fan of cold weather. So as I mentioned. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I'm assuming Alaska is, tends to be pretty cold now. Yeah, that, but it, you know what? Actually, it's not that different from here, except for there is more snow in the winter. In terms of daylight, where I grew up in Anchorage, um, you know, here it's dark, what, it like, but before four, the mm. worst time. Well, today's the longest day of the year, isn't it? It's the solstice today. The short, um, shortest. Or yeah, today's the shortest, sorry. Shortest, shortest day of the year, yeah. So actually, I'm really excited because every day now we get another minute or two <laughs> of sunlight going forward. Um, and in Anchorage at this time of year, it probably gets dark about two. So, you know, and then it probably is dark till about 10 in the morning, which is pretty weird. But then in the summer, it's light pretty much the entire time. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 but then of course it is a bit colder in the winter. The summer is pretty similar to here too. So I would love to go. I mean, it's it, the pictures I've seen. It just looks absolutely stunning. Beautiful. Yeah. There's all those TV shows and then you can, and then of course people like Sarah Palin have, made it yeah. famous in negative ways for many of us, but <laughs> there you go. There you go. So let's finish off with some quick fire questions. If you're ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> so what would you say is the biggest threat to let's say the world? Easy question. Climate change. Climate change. Yeah. And you just mentioned that that's going to be an area you're adding to Risi. So, yeah, we're trying to yeah. do more on climate and security and it's trying to find an area where we can add value and that isn't mm. being done by others or isn't being overdone by others. Yeah, well, that'd be really interesting, uh, especially ahead of COP. And um, if, you, um, if you could host a dinner party and you could invite any three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Um, who would they be, dead or alive, any three people? What am I meeting Vladimir Putin? Mm. Um, quite like to meet Bill Clinton. I never met him. Oh, Barack Obama, I would love to meet him. So some people I admire and some people I don't admire just to see how they tick a bit. Yeah. Hillary Clinton, I got to know a little bit. I really admire her, but I never met her husband. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I know, but I'd like to meet all three of those as well. But you know, I don't know about you, Laura, the older I get, the less I get excited about meeting people that I thought mm. were quite extraordinary. Because the more interesting people you meet, I mean, certainly I know tons of very interesting people and I, I'm so lucky in my job. I really do get to meet a lot of great people. But 
I don't know, it's never as exciting as it was when you're younger. And it seems such a big deal. The older you get, the more jaded you get or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that is true. I think that's also because you just increasingly realize that they are just people. Yeah, they are just people. Actually and quite are kind normal. of boring and, you know, they're not very <laughs> funny. And Yeah, you come too close to the sparkle, it fades pretty, yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, they say never to meet your heroes as well because they often disappoint. Yeah, disappoint you, um, yeah. But uh, no, that, that, that is definitely true. And um, what's the best book that you've read during lockdown? Okay, I've read a lot of books, uh, more, I've read a lot of uh, historical fiction, but one book I really loved, I read recently, was called, it's by Yung Chang, who wrote Wild Swans. And this is her more recent book called Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister. And it's mm-hmm. about the Sung sisters, one of whom married Sun Yat-sen, the father, father of modern China, and that woman later became one of Mao's vice chairman, chairwoman, chairman, whatever. Um, another sister married uh, Chiang Kai-shek, Madam Cheng. And then the third sister was one of the wealthiest women in China. And it's just super interesting because they obviously played such an important role in, in early modern China, I guess you could say. Well, no, I can't. I'm not going to try to date anything in China, given how, what an old civilization it is, but certainly uh, in their period. And it was just really beautifully written. It was a very interesting story. Yung Chang, Yung Chang is a wonderful storyteller. So I quite enjoyed that book. Interesting. And then finally, what's the best advice you've ever received that you would like to pass on? Mm, I've received so much advice over the years. Uh, what's the best advice? I think maybe the best advice and one I repeat quite often is, is always look for good ideas in strange places. So don't always assume that the senior most people have the best ideas. And in fact, I think mm-hmm. uh, Secretary of State Ben Wallace made this point when he spoke at RUSI last week. He's trying to get, let the ideas percolate up. What he used a, used a, a good phrase about how making sure that they can come up and they get stifled. I can't remember his uh, phraseology, but um, I... Do you think, and I remember when I lived in Washington, we used to say, you know, the best ideas don't come from DC, they come from elsewhere. Mm. And certainly I say that at RUSI all the time that, you know, the younger people often have the best ideas. So we just have to make sure we are as open and listening as much as possible to people, even especially with people who think very differently from you. Sometimes you can think, oh, that person irritates me. But then after you force yourself to listen, they're saying something quite interesting too. So I just never write anybody off and always be open to ideas wherever they come from totally that's that's very good advice karen thank you so much for joining the show laura a pleasure thank you for having me thank you for listening don't forget to subscribe and if you know anyone who you think would love to hear about karen's story please pass it on bye